last week. We got halfway through our through the, the halfway point of the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea has 14 chapters, so we finished chapter 7 last week. So turn, if you will, to Hosea chapter 8, where we will pick up. So we've got over that hump. Um, I don't know how much longer it's going to take. We've been covering one chapter every Thursday night. And, um, and again, it's just been an incredible, incredible book. In the section from about chapter 4 to right now, to this chapter... We are in the indictment part, the accusation part, the, the arraignment part. As I shared with you a few weeks ago when we got to this part, it was as if now the prophet had, had shared with us this crazy story that God wanted him to go through so that he would understand how, how God felt. Of, of how Israel would go out whoring around and, and prostituting itself to, to other, other, other gods. And, and, and he tells Hosea, marry a prostitute. And then she goes off and does that. And then he goes, now go buy her back. Go get her. And so now he, we get into chapter, we got into chapter four to chapter eight. And again, it's now the time for arraignment. So, so you see like this courthouse, this scenario. And when we, lit, when we finish this part here, according to my Bible, the way it's broken up, chapter, the next two chapters have to do with the retribution part. It's almost going to get worse before it gets better in this book. This is a hardcore book, and it's hitting us hard in so many ways because, again, God is bringing judgment upon his people. And understand this, God is a loving God, right? But he's not afraid to bring judgment. That's who our God is. He doesn't apologize for, oh, no, no, I got to discipline you. He never apologizes for that stuff. When Israel, when they went doing their thing, he said there will come a time that judgment will come. And he gives them all this time to repent. And so it looks like as we continue on in our studying on Thursday night through the OT year, things will get worse before they get better. But that is what is to be expected in just about anything in life that we go through. Because it's just the way the cycle goes, if you understand that. When situations get to a certain point, it will have to go through this cycle that God gives opportunity upon opportunity when we're going through certain things in our lives. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent, to turn. Before we get to that point of no return. <laughs> and, and, and he gives us all this time to avert, to prevent, to avoid judgment. As I've shared with you repeatedly, the book of Hosea is about redeeming love. Which shows us that God will go to any length to bring his people back. After they have passed a certain point. And I've shared with you time and again that he's dealing with the northern kingdom the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom being the kingdom of, of, of Judah. And he's dealing with these people and he's giving them time. But they've passed that time. After King Jeroboam II, 
after that time, it was going to be judgment. But he had given them all this other time. Now, again, in our lives, can I, can I just say that, that, that you can have less scars in your life, spiritually speaking. And, and, and what do I mean by that? There's certain things that, that God has shown us as Christians how to walk this walk. And then he says, but you can do whatever you want. Not everything's good for you, but you have the freedom to do whatever you want. And when we start taking advantage of those times, it's like, well, I've got freedom to go do whatever I want, right? You end up with more scars at the end because you're going, well, I have the freedom. It's like, but it wasn't good for you. Yeah, but I needed that adventure in my life to build my testimony. It's like, really? You wanted that kind of testimony in your life? Because when we allow ourselves to get to a certain point, when we are thinking we have all the liberties in the world, and we do. But there comes a time that God says, okay, now it's time for judgment, for discipline. Let's just put it that way, for discipline. You see, he gives us that time to take advantage of his kindness, of his goodness, of his grace, and his opportunity to repent when we get to ourselves to a certain point that he says, repent right now before you go through the cycle of having to go through the discipline in your life. And that's why I say you can get away with less scars in your Christian life if you truly obey God, if you obey his word. The northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, it's also referred to, was at the point of no return, as I've shared with you. The northern kingdom existed for, a, for 210 years, from about 931 B.C. to 721 B.C. And they always started off on the wrong foot, because when... when, when uh, after, after Solomon, Rehoboam went to the south and Jeroboam went to the north. And they started off on the wrong foot as they went north. And the Lord gave them 178 years until the end of, of Jeroboam II's reign to repent. And they didn't. They didn't. And it would be another 32 years before it was all over and they got taken captive. So, so again, 178 years, hey, repent, repent, repent. You get to this certain point and he says, okay, judgment's coming. And that's where we find ourselves in the text. Judgment. They're being indicted. They're, they're, they're being, the, the accusations are coming one upon another, and we're going to see some more. And again, I've, I've shared with you, man, this is not a happy text. But man, oh man, do we get there oftentimes. And the Lord chastens us. Because now they're in this period of 32 years, and they're going through king after king after king. And there's six more kings after Jeroboam II. And then judgment. Boom. The Syrian army will come in. And we see a little bit tonight. So I'm assuming you're at Hosea chapter 8. Let's ver read the first six verses. It says, Set the trumpet in your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. 
because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long? Till they attain to innocence. For from Israel even is even this. A workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. Set a trumpet. The, the Hebrew word for trumpet is shafar. Now, I usually don't go into the Greek and Hebrew because I jack those words up. <laughs> but I share this word shafar with you because in your Christian life, you will hear that word from someone and say, oh, sounds a shafar, blah, blah, blah. And you're going, what is a shafar? I've never heard that word. It's a Hebrew word, and it literally means a ram's horn. So now you know. And so I had to bring that up. But this chapter begins with a sound, a note of an, of an alarm, if you will. And it's a sound and a note from this trumpet. It's a warning that the enemy is coming. Because you see, a trumpet always sounded a certain tone, whether it was for battle going out or the enemy coming in or mess hall or whatever, chow. You know, they always have this trumpet of what it's for. And this one was the sound of, of an alarm, of an impending battle. But it wasn't the fact that they were blowing the, the trumpet to go that away. It is actually the Assyrians, whom they had looked for help, who, who were actually their enemy, they were the ones that were basically sounding the alarm. And God's commanding them. God is commanding a heathen nation to blow the trumpet to attack his own people. And you think, like, why would God do that? Why would God allow an outside entity, a sovereignty, a, a kingdom to come against his kingdom? Doesn't God protect his own people? Yes, he does. But like I said, he's not afraid to bring judgment against his people because of disobedience. And so he allows someone from the outside, this army, that is going to swoop in swoop down on them like a powerful eagle would. You saw seen, you know, the, the eagles, man. They just swoop in and wham! They take off the little rodents, man. I've seen the picture. I don't know how true it is. But this eagle take, comes and takes this, this goat. And the poor goat is just like, <laughs> you know, it's like it's a bad day, a bad day for that goat. But man, they just swoop in and take it with their talents, man. They're just like crazy, right? That is how this, this army, the Assyrian army, was going to come against 
Israel for judgment. And that announcement of judgment goes back to the covenant that God had made with His people Israel, and it recalls the curse of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because they have transgressed, it says in verse 1, because they have transgressed my covenant. Deuteronomy 28, 49 says this, the Lord will bring a nation from a far to bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth like a swift as swift as the eagle flies a nation whom language you do not understand he wrote that probably at least 700 years earlier that that's what would be happening to the nation of Israel if they disobeyed. Again, I've told you guys time and time again, read Deuteronomy 28. It changes your life. Because the beginning tells you, here's all the blessings if you obey. Here's all the curses if you do not obey. And so now, because they have gotten to a point, he says, this is the, the, the curses that are coming upon you because you have transgressed my covenant. And it is coming against the house of the Lord. Again, here referring namely to Israel, the northern kingdom of Ephraim. And we are reminded once again, it is because of the rebellion. Because, it says at the end of verse 1, and rebelled against my law. That word rebelled means to break away from just authority, i.e., Trespass, apostolize, quarrel, offend, rebel, revolt, transgress is what that word rebel means. Because of that. In verse 2 it says, Israel shall cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel made a pretense of devotion to the Lord, addressing Him as their own God and claiming the knowledge of His authority over them. That is what they say. Israel will cry to me, my God, you know me, or we know you. And this profession sounds great. We know you. But it is only lip service from them. We, we, we looked at that last week, I think it was, where again, he keeps on saying, or whenever it was, you say these things two weeks ago, that's, or that's what it was, verse, chapter 6, saying all the right things, saying, but Lord, we know you, I'm one of yours. And how many times do we play this game like they're playing? We know that judgment's coming, we know that God's catching up with us. <laughs> Because we're sneaky, right? And we think we can get away with it. And we know that impending discipline and or judgment even is coming against us. And we go, but Lord, you know who I am. I know you. I'm one of your kids. But it's all lip service. You see, because of, of their sinful actions, their sinful actions spoke louder 
than their words. In other words, they like to talk the talk. They just didn't like to walk the walk. <laughs> and I think oftentimes we're really good at that, especially if we're like little connivers, as most of you are. <laughs> as most of us are. We talk a really good game. And yet, when it comes down to it, we don't often walk that, that game. We like to walk, or talk the talk, but not walk the walk. And it's interesting because people catch on with that, especially God. God knows that. God knows that, man, you could try to sweet talk him all day long. And even when we come here and we raise our hands and we're going, oh my gosh, Lord, it's, you're so good, man. And then we just go off the rails on people. And God says, hmm, you were just, I was just reading in James the other day with the same mouth. We, we, we bless God and we curse man with the same mouth. That's who we are. And yet he knows when it's just lip service. And it reminded me and it took me to Matthew at the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount when, when Jesus is speaking, it's towards that sermon, and he says, and many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh my goodness. That is such a punch in the gut, man. To, to get to that point... And, and go, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? And he turns around and says, excuse me? I never knew you. I never knew you because I never saw obedience from you. I saw you with the lip service. I seen you raising your hand. I hear you with your Christian music. I see all those things. But I see the rest of it also. I see all of it. And that's what these people, Israel, again, they know judgment's coming. He's been indicting them. They've been in this court of law setting, and he's been just laying it on them. And they're still saying, but we know you. Verse 3, Israel has rejected the good, and the enemy will pursue him. The reality was <laughs> that Israel had rejected what was good in the sight of the Lord. What, what was God's moral and ethical requirements? They rejected that. To go do what they wanted to go do. Again, they knew how to play the game. They knew the right words to talk to God about, like, Lord, we know, the, we know you, you know us. And yet we have Amos and Malachi also, uh, or not Malachi, Micah, touching on these things. Amos 5, 14, uh, 14, 15, he says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord of hosts will be with you as, as you have spoken. Hate evil or ev hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be generous or gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That's what the Lord required. 
to, to seek good and not evil. To hate evil and love good. That is his, his, his moral and ethical requirements. Micah puts it like this in 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's all he requires of us, right? Why is that so hard to do? Why, why, do, we, why do we allow ourselves to do the things that he says, that's not what I've called you to do? Because it's in our sin nature. And I know that we can blame our sin or our, our nature all day long, our flesh. I blame it all the time. I know, I repent of it as well. But he has called us to do what is good and hate what is evil. And yet, it is within all of us, as it was within the nation of Israel, to reject what is good. Because sometimes going off on someone feels really, really good. I was talking to someone today that I had to kind of talk off a ledge. Part of me didn't want to talk him off a ledge. Because I knew the situation. And you almost want to go like, yeah, go for it, bro. I'm all for it. Got my vote. And yet, and he really doesn't know the Lord. And so it was almost like, well, do it, man. That's, that's what's in your heart. But at the same time, he's calling me because he's, he's saying, I know you will tell me what is right to do. And so in that, I had to put my pastor hat on. <laughs> and remember that I was a Christian again, right? And go, yes. This is what the Bible says. Even though he doesn't read the Bible. He didn't know what was in there. But again, I know, and even he knew, that even though he wanted to hurt someone verbally really, really, really bad, he, without really knowing the Lord, knew that ethically and morally he should love good. He should do good. Even if that other person didn't deserve it, not one bit. And I praise the Lord that again, he says, I was going to flip a, a coin. Do I call that person first or call you? And I said, well, I'm glad I won. He goes, I didn't even flip the coin. I just knew that I had to call you. And that's like, oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. But again, it's, it's, it's those things in our lives that we know. And, and, and again, Israel rejected the good. I think as Christians, we actually have to work harder because we know what God requires of us. We have to work harder to do what is good, but it's almost like you almost have to work double hard to reject what is good because you know better. I know better. And that's what they did. And because of that, he says, the enemy will pursue him. Because of their lip service, because they rejected what was good, the enemy would soon be upon them, pursuing them. And in their swift retreat, if you would, they're running back. There's this picture that is fulfilled of another covenant because they of another curse because they have broken the covenant. Again, from Deuteronomy 28, verse 45. 
Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until, they, until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, his statutes, which he commanded you. See, the Lord not only has spelled it out in his word, in many ways he spelled it out in our hearts. Especially when we have come to the Lord and said, Lord, I want to obey what you want me to do, not what I want to do. Because it's so easy to do what we want to do. And yet when we acknowledge him in all our ways and, and, and turn to him, it says that he will direct our path. But when we decide to be willfully disobedient, putting away what is good and following after these things, then the, the natural process is the enemy will pounce and will overtake and will destroy. That is the natural process. And that's what's going on here in Hosea. He says in verse 4, he says, You set up kings, but not by me. You have made princes... But I did not acknowledge them. It would have been the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Judah who kept the dynasty of David, of King David, whom the Lord had chosen to be king, if you remember. But when the northern kingdom divided, when the kingdoms divided and the northern kingdom went on their own, they began to set up kings that God had not chosen. They started doing things, for, like I said, they started off the, on the wrong foot because they didn't even acknowledge God. They just continued to do their own thing and they raised up kings that God says, I didn't appoint them. They, they, they set up princes to come after them that God says, I won't even acknowledge them. And that's why for the 19 kings that the northern kingdom had, not one of them did right in the sight of the Lord. It tells us at, time and time again through kings, through first and second kings, especially second kings, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, all 19 of them. Because they not, none of them sought him. Now, I, again, as I'm writing this, as I'm thinking about this, I'm going, but Lord, you knew that this kingdom would be divided. You knew that they would set up kings and there would be all these rulers. You allowed it to happen. But it wasn't what he had for them. His heart would have been, hey, acknowledge me, turn to me. I will meet you where you are at. But instead, they appointed kings. They put leaders without consulting the Lord. And they made their kings. They made kings and they removed kings to satisfy their own desires. And this kind of alludes to that series, the series of, of, of palace revolts that I shared with you last week. And how the northern kingdom from Jeroboam to, to uh, Hashua, there was like six kings. And we touched on that at least four of them were assassinated. One guy didn't even last a month. There was just this intrigue that was going on and they just kept on killing one another. And there was no dynasty to speak of. And they made idols, it says. 
from their silver and their gold to themselves. Israel, again, directed their ways towards these idols instead of going, here, why don't we just seek God and see if He can at least help us through our time? They never did that. Instead, they, 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 they manufactured these, these gods, and especially the golden calves. They set one down in Bethel, and they set one up in the northern part, way northern part, by the place called Dan. And those, 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 those calves did not help them at all. And he says in verse 5, Your calves, your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long till you attain innocence? The word rejected is now used for the second time in five verses. And it means to push aside, i.e. reject, forsake, fail, cast away, cast off, remove far away, remove uh, far off, to forcefully reject someone. But that word reject also has the meaning to stink, to omit stench, to become odious. So in verse 3, it means to push aside, to reject, to forsake, to fail, to move away, to move forcefully, all, all those things. But when you get to verse 5, it can mean the same thing as verse 3, but more than likely it carries that second meaning, to stink, to omit stench, to become odious. And so it could read like this, your calf stinks, O Samaria. Or, Samaria, I reject your calf with loathing. Here's the way the, the New Living Translation puts it. O Samaria, I reject this calf, this idol that you have made. My, fire, uh, my fury burns against you. How long will you be incapable of innocence? The Amplified puts it like this. Your calf, idol, O Samaria, is loathsome. And I have spurned it. My, my wrath burns against you. How long will it be before you obtain your attain purity? So, so as Israel had rejected what was good and turned to idols, now God turns around and tells, tells Israel, I reject your calf. What you offer to me, I reject it, and it stinks to me. That's basically what he is saying. Now, since there's no record that such an idol was erected in Samaria, the city may stand here for, for the, just the northern kingdom in general because Jeroboam I had set up two calves, one in Bethel, which was on the southern part of the northern kingdom, and then way on the northern part in Dan. So he had set up two. And so by setting up these calves, if you will, Jeroboam I was kind of repeating the sin that had happened in earlier generations. If you remember, when Moses had gone up to the mountain and all the people are going, what happened to this guy Moses? Aaron, 
make us a God. And Aaron says, okay. And he makes this calf. And when Moses came down, what'd you do? He goes, I don't know. I just threw the gold in there and out came a calf. <laughs> and you're thinking Moses is probably going, okay, I know I was born at night, but not last night. Right. You're kidding me, Aaron, right? But they, they were doing the same sin, if you will. Repeating the same sin as this golden calf. Because again, Jeroboam would, would end up saying, this is your God. This is your God, O Israel. And so in a sense, God is, is saying, no, I will reject your God. That is not even a God. How can this calf be a God? It's crafted by men. It is man-made. It can't see, it can't hear, it can't do anything for you. And you consider it a God? <laughs> Romans 1, 20-25, it says this, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because... Though, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, of creeping things. Therefore, God had gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who would change the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That was written hundreds of years later. <laughs> and he's saying, as, and, and Paul's writing to the Christian church, we do the same thing. We end up doing the same thing. That we set up things that are made, that are man-made, that are even imaginary in our own minds, and we put that on the throne instead of Jesus. And, and we think that can help us more than Jesus could ever help us. And that phrase, again, it is not a God, probably meant to, to refute Jeroboam the first when he said, Here, Israel, is your gods. And God's going, They're not God. It shall be broken in pieces. This calf shall be broken in pieces. The destruction of this image would demonstrate the futility of idolatry. In other words, they can do nothing. They can't help you. And again, we, we, we look at this like these, these, these fools. And it's like, come on, people. We do the same thing. We set up our own stinking idols. And we think that they are going to help us. And whatever that is in our lives that takes the throne, it will never, ever give you anything of substance. It really will not. Just like these idols. He says they will come to nothing. Verse, verse uh, 7 to 10. Man, I'm going to have to hurry here. You know what? Let's just read to the end of the chapter. It says, <clears throat> They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no bud. It shall never produce meal. It shall, if it produces, aliens will swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. 
Now they are among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which is no pleasure. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Verse 11, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have, come, they have become to him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has also has multiplied fortified cities. I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces. This concept of sowing and reaping, it relates to conduct, man's conduct. And it's used oftentimes in Scripture. In Job, Job said this, Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Proverbs 22, 8, He who sows iniquity reaps sorrow, and his rod uh, and the rod of his anger will fail. The New Testament says it like this in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows of the flesh will of the, of the, uh, of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so Hosea uses this analogy of sowing and reaping, and he will use it again in chapter 10. Their idolatry and their political alliances that they had made. The Israelites were trying to sow seed that would produce a good harvest. But they were only sowing the wind. That is, they were sowing vanity. They were sowing nothing. And because of that, they would reap the whirlwind. A whole lot of nothing. <laughs> Powerful enough to destroy them. Nothing would destroy them because they were reaping to nothing. You see, at this point, nothing could stop the forces of the Assyrian army coming in. The seed of rebellion had produced a harvest. And it would be more powerful than the seed could ever be. In all their efforts, directed to self-preservation would end up being self-destructive in their lives. Why? Because they were sowing to the wind and they were, they were going to reap the whirlwind. It was going to destroy them. They wouldn't be able to stand because wind here represents that which lacks substance, futility. It was pointless. It was vanity. 
and it would be worthless at the end. And it would destroy them because it would come in stronger. It's almost like their sin was like this, and you're going, but it's not, that's not fair because I only sinned a little bit, and I feel like the judgment is great, greater than my sin. But that's what kind of happens because we sin, we sin, we sin, we sin, and we sin, and we sin, and we think like, oh, it's not that bad. And then when judgment goes, it's like, man, if you had to add up all that sin, it's like you deserved worse. We deserved worse. The stock has no bud. Israel's crops would be worthless, containing only the stock without grain. And if there was anything produced in it, if anything was produced, they would probably go, oh, we got a little bit of grain. The aliens, not from outer space, but the foreigners would come in and take that to where they would still have nothing. All their labors benefited them nothing. They were coming up short. They were coming up with nothing because they were planting vanity and they got a whole lot of vanity coming in and just wiping them out. And so it says Israel is swallowed up. Israel is swallowed up in verse 8. And they are among the Gentiles. They have been taken away and like vessels which have no pleasure. The, the, this term no pleasure means worthless things. And it could be translated a pot in which no one delights. In other words, Israel has become as worthless as a broken pot. It's done. It was done. They have gone up to Assyria <laughs> in verse 9. Attempting to align themselves with Assyria... They're being compared of, of, of like a wild donkey, an animal who, who desires to be independent from all restrictions. And it also talked about how they align themselves and, and they're compared to, to, it's compared to prostitution here where Ephraim has hired lovers. They've gone out looking uh, uh, as, as a harlot who sold herself to a foreign power. To, to her lovers. And yet God says in verse 10, yes, they have hired among the nations. Now I will gather them. Now I will gather them. Despite Israel's desperate attempt, basically, to preserve themselves, God's judgment was certain. And, and, and the picture that we hear, have here is that from their wandering ways, he would bring them back. And it's almost like he's bringing them back into court to continue with this judgment. And verse 11 says, Ephraim has made many, sin, many altars for sin and have become for him altars of sinning. And it's like, well, of course, if you make altars for sin, guess what you're going to be doing there? Sinning. So, so they made it convenient for themselves because God says, I don't want altars. You worship me in Jerusalem. But they said, no, it's too far to go. We're going to make our own altars. And that drew them into sinning more and more. And it gave them the opportunity continually to, to kind of just spin out of control in their sin to where they, they, they had passed that point. I have written for him 
the great things of my law. But it was to them, in verse 12, they, they considered it a strange thing. Isn't that sad? God, God writes to them. He ministers to them, saying, here, let me write the law in your heart. Let me show you what is good and what is righteous and what, what those things that I require of you. And for them, it ended up being something strange to them. And, that, and I find it fascinating. It's like you knew what was good, but you had been in sin for so long that that looked strange to you. It was almost like you didn't even recognize it anymore. And I don't know if you've ever known someone who is on fire for the Lord and all of a sudden, man, they just turn and they bail and, and man, you can't even recognize them. They don't even recognize what goodness looks like anymore. And it was almost like these guys, what God had, had made for them for good, they didn't even, they thought, that's strange. It doesn't even compute to them that they would adhere to that. And yet, they continue to bring their sacrifices because they knew Oh, God will, will accept our sacrifices. And as we shared, I think it was last week, God desires obedience rather than sacrifices. He desires these kinds of things, obedience, rather than anything that you can bring Him and say, here, let me appease you, God. He says, no, I want your life. For Israel, at the end here, verse 14, has forsaken his Maker. They have built temples. Talking about the northern kingdom. And then he says, Judah has multiplied fortified cities, speaking of the southern kingdom. In other words, the northern kingdom was blatantly sinning, going after other gods. And yet Judah, the southern kingdom, was guilty of a more subtle sin. Trusting in what they had built. Oh, it didn't look that bad. But they began to trust in their fortified cities instead of God. And it's kind of, kind of mind-blowing because you see someone who is in blatant sin and you're going, well, of course God would bring judgment upon them. And yet, I think oftentimes, again, in our conniving, we, we, we build these things around us and it looks pretty good. It doesn't look bad. And yet we end up trusting in that. And God says, I see it. <laughs> You're trusting in something that I have not given you. You have built for yourself certain firewalls around you, whatever it may be, that you're going, but it's good, isn't it? It's like, well, it could be until you started trusting in it rather than trusting in God. And so he kind of, again, in this indictment says, Israel has forgotten its maker and built temples to other gods. But I haven't forgotten you, Judah. Because I see where you're headed. You're trusting in these things that you have built. So the indictment, the accusations, the, the arraignment is now complete as we finish this chapter. As, as we head into chapters 9 and 10, we get into the retribution part the vengeance that God will dole out upon his people. Again, if you want a good read, <laughs> read the next two chapters. Just, just so you can get a feel of, of the judgment that is coming. He told them, here's the judgment. This is what's going to happen. And he keeps on saying, and so they're in the court of law. 
And he's saying, here it is, here it is, here it is. And then the guilty. Now it's time for the sentencing. I guess it's the sentencing. Now you got to pay the piper, you know. And now this is what's happening from here on out. And so again, read the rest of the book. Because again, through it all, we're going to see that God's redeeming love is still effective. And he will go to great lengths, even if he has to chastise us, even if he has to let us go, do our own thing, or trust in the things that we have made. God still sees it all. He's always trying to draw you in. And when we cross that line of saying, now I will discipline you, and now you're going to end up with a scar <laughs> for the rest of your life, but I will redeem you. And he does that to us. And he's that good to us. He really is, guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you.